Hey everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. I keep getting yelled at for all of my preamble and telling you all that I love you, but honestly, I really don't care. I am going to let my viewers know every single video that I love you and I appreciate you, and if you can't stick in there for like one whole minute that I spend telling everybody I love them. So anyways, yeah, welcome back to my channel. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not, I hope you know how much I love and appreciate every single one of you. And I absolutely love all of the support that I get from my viewers. I really, really appreciate it. And I love the fact that you guys come back every week to hang out with me, so that's amazing. I've been doing live videos recently, and I really like it. I never thought I would like doing live videos, but I actually really love doing it. It gives me a chance to talk a lot to my viewers and have conversations about stuff that I'm, like, really interested in that really nobody else cares about. <laughs> like, nobody in my real life wants to talk about Mafia members and listen to my boring stories, so I really appreciate the outlet of being able to go live and people that actually want to converse about this stuff. I love it. I also really want to apologize because I was going a while there that I was coming out with a video every single week. Like, I made it a long time doing that. But I kind of fell off from that, and it's been about three weeks at this point since I put another video out. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that I dressed up as Harley Quinn for Halloween, and I spray-painted my hair red. Like, with one of those temporary sprays that's supposed to come out in one wash. Spoiler alert, it did not come out in one wash, and I still, to this day, cannot get this red temporary dye out of my hair. And it didn't stay, like, the vibrant red when you spray it. Oh no, it was, like, a dull pink. It was horrible. So I took a while off of recording for that because I didn't want to make a video and have, like, weird red-pink hair. And I was going to look like an entire idiot. So I took a little time off, and then I dyed my hair back to my natural color. It still got a little bit of red. I'm sure you could see the tints of red. But for the most part, I think I got rid of it, and I'm pretty proud of it because it took a lot of work to get it out. Another reason is that... I have a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. This isn't something I've ever even remotely talked about on this channel, but I'm starting IVF. And I know that this is something that's way off topic for the mafia stuff and the videos that I usually make, and I will get to that in a minute. But I did want you guys to know I didn't just stop caring. I didn't just not feel like making videos, but... The prospect of putting needles in my stomach every day and the hormones that I've got raging everywhere, it's a lot to handle. I'm doing my best to get back on a weekly schedule, I promise, but please, please, please just give me a little grace and tolerate the fact that I'm a little bit wishy-washy and all over the place right now. So honestly, I haven't figured it out yet, and maybe I'll just cut this part if I do figure it out, but this might have to be my first part one and part two episode. Because there is legit so much information I have to go through on these guys. I know I have a lot more research done than I usually do for my other gangsters. So I do feel like this could easily end up becoming a two to three hour long video. 
And rather than leave it that way, I might just break it up into two separate episodes. So if you're seeing this, more than likely I did break it up into two separate videos. And I hope that you hang out for this first one and that you come back for the second one because I'll probably put it out a week later. So anyways, today's gangster is a really cool one because it isn't just one gangster, it's two. I saw them as I was passing by on a Facebook post, and they seemed super interesting, so I definitely wanted to learn about them, and there's so much information about them, I absolutely love it, so I can't wait to share. Before I do, I wanted to share with you guys because I usually try to zoom in on my face to, like, get as much one-on-one -on -one with the camera as I can, and I never end up showing you my really, really cute sweaters, so I want you to see it because I'm in love with it. Isn't this freaking adorable? And it's it's all like sparkles, so like it reflects. And when I'm in the car, like it it reflects the sun and it has all like the the sunspots on the the roof of the car. I absolutely love it, guys. Okay, now that I just completely destroyed my hair, let's go ahead and get into today's gangster. Reginald Cray were identical twins that were born on October 24th, 1933. They were born in Hagerston, East London. Their father, Charles David Cray, was a wardrobe and scrap gold dealer, and their mother, Violet Annie Lee, was a stay-at-home mom. Their father, I think that he was just a salesman. Like, it's called, like, oh, he was a scrap gold dealer. I've seen wardrobe. I've seen clothing. I think he just, like, fenced anything he could get his hands on. It doesn't seem like he was too much of a criminal, but he, he got by by selling stuff. I didn't see any mentions of, like, drugs or anything, though, so I don't know. But I know I've seen a lot of different things listed as, like, what he sold for a living. Out of the two boys, Reginald who is known as Reggie, was the older boy, having been born 10 minutes earlier than Ronald, who is known as Ronnie. I'm not a twin, but I've always heard that, like, that few minutes earlier that the one twin is born really sets the tone and makes the older sibling pretty much, like, older throughout their entire lives. They're identical twins, but that 10 minutes means that the person that was born first is usually going to be the older of the two siblings for their entire life. Because those 10 whole minutes that they existed on Earth before you came into the picture is going to be well known. I promise you. Charles and Violet had a son, Charles James. In 1927, before giving birth to Ronnie and Reggie in 1933. Two years later, in 1929, they welcomed a daughter, Violet. This is actually a really sad situation, though, because Violet ended up dying as an infant of SIDS. This is, like, absolutely heartbreaking and obviously had a huge impact on their parents and their mom and the way that they were raised and the way that their parents interacted with them. 
it's serious. You know, you have a toddler die. Parents are going to be a lot more hovering and, you know, just overall a little more scared, I think. Especially from something like SIDS, because it's not like she got sick. She just passed away one day, which is so sad and so unexpected. And I'm sure left the mom feeling like there was nothing she could have done to prepare or to have changed it. So I don't know. I just imagine that that definitely has, it makes a difference in raising all the kids that lived. In 1936, when the twins were three years old, they caught diphtheria. Diphtheria is an infection that's caused by a bacterium. It can cause a swollen neck, and that swollen neck is referred to as bull neck. The bacterium that causes diphtheria is spread through the air, so it makes sense that when one of the twins caught it, they both caught it, and they both had it at the same time. People that have diphtheria have come to report complications like myocarditis, inflammation of the nerves, kidney problems, and bleeding problems. Stemming from those issues, people have experienced an abnormal heart rate and paralysis. There's a pretty low mortality rate, with only 5-10% to 10 of people who contract it dying, but nowadays it doesn't really exist so much because there is a vaccine. People that come down with this will have like a nasty gray growth on their tonsils. It's really gross. And they'll sometimes have lesions on their body. And sometimes they even require a tracheotomy to open the airway due to the bull neck because the bull neck makes your neck swell so much that they literally need to cut your throat so that you can have a pathway for yourself to breathe. It's... It's very gnarly. Children also started to die from the vaccine. There were cases where the horses that they were getting the antitoxin from had tetanus, and all the people that got those particular shots died. The vaccine was completed and safer later on, but the antitoxin to treat the diphtheria is the medication that they were transporting in Balto, which I don't know if you ever saw it, but I loved that movie when I was a kid. Balto, I, I love dogs. Like, I'm seriously, I like animals more than I like people. So any movie, especially a Disney movie and a cartoon about a dog, I'm going to absolutely love. But yeah, so Balto is about transporting medications for diphtheria because there was a little girl that was sick with diphtheria, and it was a medication that needed to get to this village. The race to get the medication to the sick children, known then as the Great Race of Mercy in Nome, Alaska, is now commemorated as the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race. Ronnie and Reggie were pretty lucky, and I, as far as I can see, they didn't have too bad of side effects. Growing up, their mother was definitely the most important person in either of their lives. They had each other, they had their mom, and that was pretty much like all they needed in this world. Yeah, their father was around, but mom was the one that held them down. She did the discipline, she did the playing, she did the child rearing, and... Dad went to work, and as we'll go over, he did disappear from time to time. Mom was the one that always stayed. I also really don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It's actually pretty typical 
And who knows if things would have been better or worse for the boys if it had been the other way around. So let's hear it for the mamas out there that do every single thing and hold their children down and are pretty much responsible for them living to adulthood. The boys went to school at Wood Close School in Brick Lane, and then they went to Daniel Street School. When the boys were five years old, the family moved to 178 Valence Road in Bethnal Green. As kids, both Ronnie and Reggie really enjoyed writing poetry. A childhood friend of theirs, Laura O'Leary, still owns like a whole shit ton of unpublished poems that they wrote as kids, and she still has it to this day, which I think is really cool. When the boys were six years old, World War II started. A lot of people lived through those times, but the problem here was that the boys lived in the very heart of where the fighting was taking place. During the war, the entire family was evacuated from their home, when the fighting just became too dangerous for civilians to live anywhere in the vicinity. The whole family, minus the dad, so the twins, and their older brother Charles and the mom Violet, they all had to flee. So they fled to East House in Hadley, Suffolk. I know how to pronounce that because I live in Suffolk right now. Dad didn't go with them because he was on the run. At 32 years old, Charles Cray, their father, was conscripted into the army, but he refused to go and he went into hiding. He would pop up here and there and he would only show up like periodically because he wanted to avoid being caught and he wanted to avoid being forced to fight in the war and he didn't want the police to like, you know, stake out the family home and for them to get harassed. So he just kind of showed up as little as possible to avoid going to war, going to jail, or having anybody else get in trouble for his presence. Going to East House was a pretty big culture shock for the boys. They had lived in a big city for their entire lives, and now all of a sudden they're dropped into this like quaint, peaceful cute little neighborhood and there's fresh air and there's beautiful landscapes and every, I mean we all know what the difference is between like a rural area and a city. Picture going from like New York City to I don't know some cornfield in Delaware like that was the difference it was it was a big big difference the change of scenery only lasted about a year until the fighting had cooled down enough so that they could move to a different location and they ended up just returning to their home in London while they were in Hadley they had been attending an all-boys school but again that was only for about a year, and then they returned back home and they went back to their normal routine. As much as the boys had been attached at the hip for their entire lives, they obviously also had their own individual personalities, and they also had their own successes, and they definitely had their own demons. Both of them really loved their grandfather, Jimmy Cannonball Lee. Whenever they would spend time with their grandfather, they would learn more and more about amateur boxing 
And they ended up getting really into it. Like, they loved boxing. It was a pretty common thing for boys of that financial box. You know, like, lower middle class. They weren't poor, but they were, like, lower middle class. And it was pretty common for boys of that age in that tax bracket to get involved in boxing. So their grandfather taught them, and they got really into it. As much as they loved each other... They definitely viewed each other as competition. So when they got into boxing, they viewed each other as opponents. That sibling rivalry kicked in, and they each aspired to be the best at the sport. Rather than saying, I want to be the best in the world, they aspired to be better than each other. And that kept them growing in the sport, because as one would get better, the other would push himself to get better, to be better than the other. Out of the two, Ronnie was the one that had emerged as the more aggressive twin. And both of the twins had seen some success in boxing, but Ronnie had more of like a chip on his shoulder. He walked around just like 100% primed for a fight. Every single move he made, every single place he went, he was ready to fight someone. He really related to a lot of underground figures. He used to read books about Chicago's underworld, and he really loved Al Capone. The Roaring Twenties was this boy's jam, and he wished that he had been born in that era. And even though he wasn't really that smart, he actually had a really low IQ, but he thrived when it came to reading anything about any figure that was similar to, you know, Chicago's underworlds, any criminals in the area, any famous people at that time. He just ate it up. Nobody could ever figure out why Ronnie was such an aggressive, angry kid. Like, nobody could figure this out. He just walked around so pissed all the time. He seemingly has the world by the balls. He's a really good fighter. He and his brother are thick as thieves. They have a really good mom that they're really close with. So it really just doesn't make any sense. Until it did. See, Ronnie was bisexual. Nowadays, that's really not a big deal. It really doesn't even matter at all. Or I guess it doesn't to me. So, like, I view it that way. So, but I'm sure that in some people's lives, it's, it's a big thing. I just like, I have friends that are bisexual or gay and it, it doesn't, it's, they don't even have to come out to me. They're just, oh, I have a boyfriend or I have a girlfriend. It makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. But back then it really, really mattered. The two boys started working as laborers for a roofer for a while. And together, they started a gang that became pretty notorious in the neighborhood. And they pretty much started to build this gang as soon as they left school in December of 1948. Ronnie, he just felt like he couldn't be himself. Especially because he really idolized some military figures. And because his dad had been in and out of his life because of the service someday... I think at some point he imagined himself going into the service. He read a lot of books about T.E. Lawrence and Ord Wingate. Both of these guys are military generals that lived these exciting, action-packed lives in the military. And he kind of had the notion that maybe one day he would do the same. 
Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a policy that came out on December 21st, 1993, and it was issued as a defense directive. This policy ordered the military to not inquire about an applicant's sexual orientation. Bill Clinton backed the policy, and I think he came to be known for it, so like, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was Bill Clinton's thing. And this policy would change the norm that was in place of not allowing anybody into the military if they were homosexual. It was both a good and a bad thing. It was a good thing because it required the armed forces to not ask questions about if somebody was homosexual. And by extension, that allows gay people to serve in the military because prior to this, they would ask. And if you said, oh, I'm gay, you would be denied the ability to serve right there. Like, full stop, you are not allowed in. It wasn't the greatest thing sometimes, though, because it required anybody that was gay to stay far, far under the radar, in the closet, like however you want to put it. They weren't allowed to disclose that they were gay. They weren't allowed to talk about when they had participated in sexual acts with a person of the same sex. And pretty much they weren't allowed to breathe a word about the fact that they were gay, which left a lot of people having to hide who they are. Under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, anybody who disclosed that they were homosexual or that they engage in homosexual conduct would be discharged from the service immediately. I think that the only caveat to that rule was that the only time that you wouldn't get kicked out of the service for that was if you were doing it to get out of the service. So in other words, if they find out that you don't want to go to war and you say that you're gay to get out of it, that's where the difference comes in. And now that I'm recording, and it's not just stuff that I researched, I'm realizing that these guys are in London, and I don't know if Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or any of the ramifications from that policy even had anything to do with the European army. I, I'm an idiot for not realizing that before. But I'm sure there was some similarity, so whatever. In America, the act was repealed in 2011, and since it ended, gay people are now allowed to openly express who they are, and they're allowed to continue serving. Having served in the military way after 2011, I cannot imagine a world where service members could not disclose that they were gay. Like, I can't even imagine it. I can't count the number of women who I met during my time that had wives or men that had husbands. It's so normalized now. And it's really sad to think about how during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they wouldn't be allowed to talk about their partner. They wouldn't be allowed to talk about their husband or wife and at the time, that wasn't even legal, so it would be, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. They wouldn't be allowed to go to, like, military events with their partner. You know, there's a lot of, like, military balls. There's, like, parties for the family. There's, like, there's like literally family-oriented events that they wouldn't be able to bring their family to. They couldn't, like, 
go to work and complain or brag about or talk about anything at all that involved their partner. Like, I can't imagine having to live by those rules. So I'm really glad at, at the end of the day, I'm glad that the military has made as much strides as it has and isn't really hanging on to that like archaic notion anymore. It's totally normalized now. Anyway, the purpose of talking about all of that is that Ronnie is bisexual and he had to hide that fact from the world. And it seems like that is really what just made him such an angry kid. He had to hide who he was from the world. He was always walking around just like cranky with a chip on his shoulder looking to fight someone. And that aggression really ended up helping him when it came to his boxing career. In 1952, Ronnie got what he had been looking for, but it wasn't all that it seemed. Ronnie and Reggie were drafted into the British Army and were ordered to report in March of 1952. They did report for service at the Royal Fusiliers at the Tower of London, but it didn't last very long. Within minutes of these boys arriving, something clicked in their head and they were like, absolutely not. This is not it. I am not doing this. Literally, within being there for only a few minutes, they turned around and just bolt. I think they looked at it like, hey, dad ran from conscription, why can't we? I gotta say, I do understand the thought process. I do. I understand. I don't think in my entire life I have ever been as scared as I was that day on the plane on my way to basic. I had prepared for it for months. I wanted to do it. I wasn't drafted. I did everything to make that happen. But once it's real and you're standing there about to become property of the government, I don't know. It just hits different. And I could definitely have seen myself being like, yeah, screw this shit. I am out. I, I could see it. So I get it. I get where they were coming from. And that's exactly what both of the twins did. When a corporal attempted to stop them and keep them there, Ronnie threw a knockout punch and absolutely bodied this dude. He laid him on the ground, like, sleeping, night-night, no more corporal, done. Reggie had actually perfected what he called the cigarette punch. He would offer a cigarette to the person that he was about to hit, and he would put the cigarette directly in the person's mouth and then hit them. Because the cigarette is in their mouth and it had just been put there, their mouth was pretty much guaranteed to be open a little bit, which made their mouth a lot more vulnerable, and it all but guaranteed that anybody that he hit would end up with a broken jaw. They walked back to their home in East End and were arrested at that house the next morning. They were turned over to the army, where they would continually go AWOL because they just did not want to be there. They would be apprehended and brought to the Tower of London and just leave again. When they were apprehended and brought to the Tower of London, they were actually kept there as prisoners 
And the twins were some of the last prisoners to ever be held at the prison at the Tower of London. Six months after their initial fleeing, they were arrested again for going AWOL. This time, when they went to arrest them, a brawl breaks out, and both twins just beat the piss out of this constable that was trying to arrest them. It didn't matter, though. They were still confined, and they were sent to Shepton Mallet Military Prison to spend the next month or so waiting for a court-martial that was going to take place because of their AWOL. This prison is Britain's oldest prison, and it's also rumored to be haunted, which is awesome. I would love, I love ghost stories and stuff like that. I absolutely love it, so I'm jealous. I mean, I guess, I guess I wouldn't love it if I was in prison. <laughs> you know, like, I would love it as, like, a tourist, but if I'm in prison, I probably don't want to be in a haunted prison. That doesn't seem fun. At this prison, they met Charlie Richardson and George Cornell. Remember that name? It's going to come up a lot in this story. You usually only spend time in military prison as long as you're in the military, and it became pretty clear pretty quickly that the twins were going to get a dishonorable discharge and no longer be active in the military. Once that conclusion had been solidified, they were getting them set up to transfer to a civilian prison. The twins were not going to take that line down, though. They started causing an absolute ruckus. They start pulling all kinds of bad shit in the prison that they're in. Like, they lose it in this prison. I don't really know why. Maybe they wanted to stay in the military prison. They didn't want to go to a civilian prison. And maybe they thought that if they did bad enough shit in this prison, they would get time added, but be kept at this military prison that they were at. I, I don't really know. Maybe they thought that if they went to a civilian prison, they would be separated and they wanted to stay together. I have no idea, but they absolutely started to amp their antics up when they figured out that they were going to be transferred to a civilian prison. Which is kind of surprising to me because... I've always heard that Leavenworth is, like, a hard labor camp. Like, military prisons are no freaking joke. Like, I would rather do civilian prison than military prison any day of the week. So the fact that they want—I I, don't—I don't know. Don't quote me on that, because I have no idea if that's the case. So while they're there, they are throwing temper tantrums like toddlers. They empty buckets— filled with human excrements onto the sergeant's heads. They would, like, mess with the other prisoners by taking control of large areas of the prison. On one occasion, they threw an entire mug of hot tea on a guard. On one occasion, they hit a guard in the head with a vase, and they ended up escaping. This prison break wasn't successful, and they were caught pretty quickly. That was the last straw for this prison, and they were transferred to a civilian prison to serve time for what they did while they were AWOL. So in other words, the military just gave up. They're like, all right, you have a dishonorable discharge. Get the hell out. And they sent them to a civilian prison, and the civilian prison was controlling them for the crimes that they committed while they were AWOL. 
during their time there, though, they pulled a lot of really serious shit. Like, on one occasion, they stole handcuffs from a guard. And they handcuffed a guard to the bars of their cell with the handcuffs that they had stolen from another guard. And while this guard is handcuffed to the bars in their cell, they set their bedding on fire. Which seriously put this dude's life in jeopardy because he's handcuffed to the bars and he can't go anywhere and they start a fire i don't think he was like gravely injured he definitely didn't die i don't think he was very badly hurt but i think that that was where they drew the line and they're like nah this is too dangerous we're not equipped for this we need to get rid of these guys the prison break it wasn't successful and they were caught really quickly so when they were caught they were sent to the civilian prison and during their time in the civilian prison psychiatrists evaluated ronnie and they said that he was educationally subnormal psychopathic schizophrenic and insane these prison psychiatrists do not freaking play, man. Like, I covered one of these gangsters where the prison psychiatrist gave the dude a prognosis of being poor. They go in on these people. Like, they do not play. They do not care what they say. It is absolutely hilarious. Because, like, this psychiatrist literally said, like, he has a prognosis of being poor. Like, that was, like, a mental illness or something, and that was, like, what he was projected to be. So, when they got out of prison, obviously, the life that they had been building before they went in is over. Done with. Gone. Reggie had actually been the one that had been offered a professional boxing career. So, he was the better of the two in boxing. Either way... That was over after the dishonorable discharge and after the prison time. So he had to leave that dream behind and neither one of the twins would ever do boxing again. Let me tell you, a dishonorable discharge will absolutely ruin your life. Like, you're done after that. I was so terrified that I was going to get discharged under a medical chapter and get a general under honorable conditions. Because even that poses serious restrictions to your life. A dishonorable discharge can only be given to a convicted service member. And it can only be given after a general court-martial. This discharge status is reserved for members who commit serious offenses. Like, I'm talking murder, manslaughter, fraud, desertion, treason, espionage sexual assault, like, you gotta do something really serious to catch a dishonorable discharge. If you receive a dishonorable discharge, you forfeit your rights to any and all government benefits. I am a 100% permanent and total disabled vet, and because of that, I very much so understand the ramifications and what that kind of discharge can do to your life. Like, it is freaking serious. You are forever forbidden from legally owning a firearm. You can never work for the government. And it may impact your ability to receive civilian government benefits. Like, you can't get unemployment. You can't get student loans. Like, anything to do with the government is just over. Outside of that, having a dishonorable discharge on your record is like a giant beacon for anybody that runs a background check on you. 
you might as well write that you're a murderer on your credit report. Like, you'll never get credit. You'll never get a lot of things. Like, as an underwriter, I'm in finance, and I am the one that determines if my company is gonna give loans to people and businesses, and... As someone that does that, I'm telling you, even if you got a dishonorable discharge 30 years ago, I'm still not going to give you money. So, in other words, it is impossible to just go back to life as usual. You can't get a job, you can't carry on living an upstanding life. And a lot of the time, just like in this case, people turn to an entire life of crime just to pay the bills. The twins started working for a man named Jay Murray by the end of the 1950s. Jay Murray was a pretty powerful figure in the Liverpool organized crime racket. Under Murray, the twins were running protection rackets, they were doing hijackings, they were completing armed robberies and doing arson, just like getting into all types of crime. They used the proceeds of these crimes to purchase properties and clubs. They bought a rundown club in Mile End at the very beginning, and as time went on, they started to add more and more clubs to their portfolio. As they started to grow in power, they formed a gang, and that gang came to be known as The Firm. When the 1950s ended and the 1960s started, life changed pretty significantly for both twins. Ronnie was busted for running a protection racket, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. The 18 months was due to a grievous bodily harm charge, and this charge was brought after Ronnie had shot and wounded, not killed, a man related to the protection racket. So just like he shot someone because they didn't pay him or something. I don't know. So during this time, while he's in prison, shortly after he bought the double R, Reggie started pressing on a man named Peter Rockman. He was pushing him hard for protection payments. He wanted a slice of Rockman's pie, and there really was not anything Rockman could say or do about it. Rockman was a notorious landlord in Notting Hill, London. He had some, like, shysty business tactics going on, and they led to him becoming a euphemism for exploiting tenants, and it got to the point that it was literally entered into the Oxford English Dictionary that Rockmanism was synonymous with the exploitation and intimidation of tenants. So, like, I don't know if any of you watch How I Met Your Mother, but, like, I watch it religiously. And there's, like, a whole episode devoted to this. Like, Marshall goes into the woman's bathroom to read something that Robin had written on the wall. And he's like, oh, they people come to this bar to have a good night out, not to deal with uh, Marshall Erickson. And pretty much just, like, used his name as, like, a pervert, like a weirdo. So when there was a landlord that was pulling some freaking asshole shit, people would be like, okay, Rockman, you know, like, the way that, like, if I'm making fun of someone, I'm gonna, like, name them something, you know, like... I don't know. If you're, like, trying to be a hard-ass, I'll be like, oh, okay, John Gotti. You know, like, that kind of thing. Just, like, 
He just became known for it. Because of his criminal dealings in business ventures, Rockman didn't really have anywhere to turn when the tables turned and he became the victim of exploitation and extortion. So, in other words, it was karma. He had been doing this to his tenants for so long that when someone started doing it to him, nobody would listen to him because he had been doing it to other people for so long. No cop or court in the world would get on board with helping him when they knew what he had done to his innocent tenants, and he was not innocent. So Rockman had to figure out a way on his own to get Reggie off of his back. He decided that the answer was to sell Reggie a club to get him off his back. He was like, here, take, take this club, just leave me alone. Rockman sold Reggie Esmeralda's barn, which was like a really, really influential nightclub that ended up attracting the city's elite people. From celebrities to dons, anybody that anyone who was anyone wanted to be seen at this club. When Ronnie got out of jail, the two worked together to launder money through a dog and horse track and through businesses that they had owned or had ownership stakes in. Because a lot of times, people will give criminals a percentage of ownership of their bar, club, or any kind of business that they have, and they do that so that they're protected. You know, like, if you have a gangster that's coming in and just messing with you over and over and over again, Let's say you give 10% ownership to one of the Cray brothers. Now, nobody's going to touch your place of business ever again. Like, ever again. Because now it's an income earner for the Crays. So they would just wash the money that they made through illegal activities in any of these businesses. They started working with Alan Cooper a banker who had helped them with their finances in exchange for protection from another gang in the area. The other gang was called the Richardson Gang, and they were considered the rivals of the firm. The firm was specifically built to closely resemble the Chicago underworld group that Al Capone had put together. I'm gonna do a redo of Capone soon. Like, I redid my Luciano video, I redid my Gotti video, and I am gonna redo my Al Capone video soon. But if you watched the original one that I made, which if you haven't, please don't go watch it. That's the worst episode. It's like one of the first ones I made. I had a crappy camera, like, not great. But if you did watch it, you would know that he really wasn't a member of the Mafia. He was just more of a gangster on his own that had connections to the Mafia. The way that he had built his group had inspired Ronnie, who like ate up anything that was featuring Capone. Movies, books, magazines, anything and everything that had the word Capone on it was going to be devoured by Ronnie. The twins overcame the dark days that they never thought that they would make anything of themselves because of the blemish of a dishonorable discharge and prison time, and they, they made it through that. By the mid-1960s, they're pretty famous. 
They're seen as a set of brothers who had picked themselves up from their bootstraps and overcame their poverty-stricken childhood to prosper and become wildly wealthy and successful. As we know, they did not actually live in poverty as kids. Like, they weren't rich, but they weren't poor. They had food to eat. They had a pretty normal childhood. But I think it was pretty common that Ronnie had a bit of a lying problem. He had a habit of embellishing stories. He was one of those people that would, like, pass a fender bender on the road and he would go home and he'd be like oh my god bro you wouldn't believe what i just saw a tractor trailer turned over and went on fire on the highway and i pulled a bunch of babies out of the fiery inferno he just like would tell stories that would make himself the hero of the story so it isn't really that surprising to hear that he sold the entire world on this life of a childhood that had absolutely nothing. Torn pants that were too short on him, and he had to walk 15 miles to school, barefoot, uphill the entire way, like that type of shit. As the owners of this nightclub, they were viewed as participants of high society. Their pictures made the papers with the likes of Frank Sinatra, Peter Sellers, and Judy Garland, Sammy Davis Jr., like a whole bunch of celebrities. They're getting pictures taken with them. Like, they are socialites. Like, picture Paris Hilton. Like, that's what the level they were on. They sold drugs to the Beatles. They had lunch with lords. They would regularly party with socialites. Their fame grew, and they started to be viewed, even with their criminal activity, as like a mascot of rebellion against the sanctimonious and hypocritical British values. They lent money to Lucian Freud, a famous British painter and droughtsman, that sold millions and millions of dollars worth of his art. Once, he was having an exhibition that would have netted him hundreds of thousands of dollars, but he ended up canceling it in the slight chance that the craze would have heard that he was having this exhibition, and they could have come around sniffing around for their money, so he just canceled it. Apparently, Lucian Freud was not so great with cards, and that's how he ended up so far in the red to the craze. One day, they're at the club, they're just like hanging around, minding their business, when all of a sudden, who should walk in but Judy Garland? And they're like, yo, this is dope as hell. This is mom's favorite actress, and she would absolutely die if she knew that Judy Garland was here. This is so cool. We have to go get mom in on this. But they're like, yeah, she's never going to come here. Like, she doesn't really leave the house. We're not going to get her to come. So what do we do? So they go up to Judy Garland, and they're like, hey, want to be a pal and come home and meet my mom? And guess what? She actually does. 
She goes with the twins back to their family home where their mother lives and they introduce the two and Judy Garland actually ends up serenading her with Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Imagine how much power you have to have to get Judy Garland to come home with you and serenade your mother with Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Like, come freaking on. The Cray twins dressed in a way that was like, considered gangster chic. In other words, like, the outfits that they had cost tens of thousands of dollars, but you could see them on, like, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro, like, in the movie The Godfather. Like, yes, I know the movie didn't come out until the 70s, but it's an oldie but a goodie that I think that you guys could, like, associate with what I'm trying to say. The British scholar Ruth Penfold Mounts described the craze as a classic example of the social bandit, criminals who became folk heroes because of the belief that they were standing up to a corrupt establishment, while also being seen as upholding the better part of society's values. They were kind of viewed like a Robin Hood. They were viewed as the type of criminals who committed crimes that were seen as acceptable crimes. They would combine, like, an air of menace and violence together with, like, an image of a romanticized air of heroic gentlemanliness, generosity, and apparent reinforcement of traditional social order parameters. Like, they were committing crimes that people viewed as acceptable. So, like, figure, if you rob Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, you rob him, and you get, like, let's say a million dollars, right? And then you go and you give that million dollars to a bunch of homeless people on the street, and you get them houses and stuff. That's the kind of crimes that they were viewed as usually pulling off. And... While they worked hard to show that they had this bad boy image, they also went out of their way to prove that they were gentlemen. They respected women, and they committed crimes like theft, but they consistently gave to the poor in the city. And they went after men that were accused of crimes like sexual assault, and... Because they were viewed as, like, anti-heroes that were fighting back against crimes that were seen as violent and hurtful, like sexual assault, their act of assault on those people was just kind of pushed off to the side. People didn't mind it. And the world just fell in love with them. Now, obviously, they're not loved by everybody. They're viewed as these amazing characters to those who are fighting against the old world values in British society. But the men and women who fought to uphold these old world values saw them as villains. They saw them as symbols of organized crime, of violence, and moral decay. So, like, picture in America the way that the public looked at John Gotti. It's kind of similar. So, like, you have most of America that's, like, lighting off fireworks and having huge celebrations when he gets found not guilty of crimes. But then you have, like, those old, stuffy, pretentious 
snooty men that are like smoking their cigars somewhere in a, you know, in a club and saying like, oh, these are the worst guys out there. You know, like it's just, there's always going to be groups of people that hate people no matter what. By this point, Ronnie had come fully out of the closet and he let the entire world know that he was bisexual. He began a romance with a conservative politician known as Lord Boothby. Against his will, the relationship became very public. It was plastered across newspapers, and this is during a time where homosexuality is still a criminal offense in the UK. And his sexual relationship with Boothby made the Cray Twins a household name. And this was not something they were happy about. They did not want to be a household name. They didn't want their name known for this kind of thing. When the article came out, they had gone and, like, threatened anybody that they could connect with this article. They used all of their clout to threaten these guys. They threatened them to sue, and they forced the newspaper to fire their editor, and the newspaper ended up printing an apology to the craze. They even went as far as to pay Boothby 40,000 euros in a settlement outside of court. Now, this whole debacle where a newspaper had reported on them and it was obvious how bad the craze and all of their friends came down on this newspaper and it made other newspapers and media sources in the area way too scared to ever report on the criminal or sexual escapades of the Cray Twins again. In other words, at this point, the media will not publicize anything at all that is not a glamorizing, perfect puff piece about the Cray Twins. They could do no wrong in the media because the media was scared that if they ever printed something that wasn't perfect the Craytons would come after them. The fact that the newspapers and all media outlets are now too scared to report on anything negative about the craze obviously leads to the twins, their image is squeakier and squeakier as time goes on. Their crimes aren't being recorded on. Their sexual escapades are not being reported on. Everything they do that isn't perfect is staying out of the papers, out of the news. And the only thing you see in the news is like money they made or promotions or pictures of them with celebrities. So it's just only, only, only good things. But just because that's all that's being reported doesn't mean that they're not still doing horrible shit. They are. But it's just continually being ignored because nobody's going to report it. So... Next to nobody knows it's happening. Years and years later, the public would come to find out what was actually going on during that time. And it definitely changed the way that the public viewed the Cray Twins. They also had a huge thing going for them that a lot of Mafia members have going for them as well. And it allows them to elude jail for a lot longer than makes sense at all. They had very, very ruthless reputations. 
It was very obvious to anyone with eyes that if you were an enemy of the craze, you were probably going to die. Talks about the blowback of being on their bad side is very widespread, very well known, and they make sure that it becomes public knowledge what they did to people like rapists or people who hurt the disenfranchised. So people knew better than to piss them off by doing something like testifying against them. Mafia members had that perk most of the time too. I can't count how many times Mafia members would be arrested and then let go because there wasn't enough evidence because a witness would drop out or recant their story or give a different story than they gave before they found out that this is a Mafia member, not just another person in society. The twins, together with other members of the firm, would regularly commit armed robberies, arson, protection rackets, assaults, and they carried out multiple murders. Ronnie, though, he's pretty freaking smart, you know? Like, the prison psychiatrists have a whole lot to say about how he's stupid, but at the end of the day, Ronnie is running around hooking up with a lot of very, very powerful political leaders. And that gave him a certain freedom from the government. A lot of government officials would avoid ever trying to pressure police into taking the craze off the street. The conservative party was always scared that if they pissed off Ronnie or Reggie, that Ronnie would go public with his relationship with Lord Boothby. And Boothby is one of the Conservative Party's top leaders and could not be seen as gay. The Labour Party, or what we would call the Democrats here in America, also didn't want to get on their bad side because Ronnie had a relationship with Labour Party MP Tom Dreberg and they did not want that to get out. So... He had somebody on both sides of the fence. Both the relationship with Tom Dreberg and the relationship with Lord Boothby seems to have stemmed from a steamy orgy that had taken place during one of the many sex parties that the three had regularly attended. So pretty much the elite gay society members kind of like gathered in secret and had these, like, scandalous orgies together. During one of these orgies, somebody snapped some photos at one particular party, and all of a sudden, there is leverage against all three parties. The members of the firm knew about Ronnie's homosexuality, and they didn't care. If they ever made any joking comments or kind of, like, made fun of him about it, he would just, like, throw a smile at them and be like, you don't know what you're missing. One of the most methodical and smartest moves that the craze ever made was one that they never tried to make. There were rumors spreading around that the American Mafia was attempting to gain a foothold in London. At the time, London was dubbed the next Las Vegas of the UK. Since the Mafia created Las Vegas, 
it only stood to reason that the mafia would step in and play a huge role in London's development in the criminal underworld. Problem with that, though, for Ronnie and Reggie, is that they already run this shit. And that's true for most cases. Everybody is always scared to let the American Mafia gain a foothold in places that they already rule, not because of any other reason other than the Mafia has a pretty strong reputation for coming in and taking over, and they want to maintain control of what they already have control of. You can see why it would be an issue for the criminal organization that is currently running a town to hear rumors that the American Mafia is going to come and step in and take control of an area. The firm had a very strong grasp on the East End, and in London in general. So the idea of these foreign Americans, the Mafia, or really anybody coming in and taking control from that organization is scary and... They are just not about to let it happen. After a lot of Reggie saying no, he would not accept a meeting with the Mafia because he did not want them coming to town, he finally caved. And he agreed to a meeting with the representatives that were representing Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky, along with Angelo Bruno, he wanted to further along the process... And he wanted to take part in the rise of gambling clubs and nightclubs in London. The both of them, they really wanted to invest in opening them up because it's a huge cash cow for them. And it's a really easy way to clean money. They wanted to be involved from the ground floor rather than investing in establishments that already existed. So... While the rise of these kind of establishments is taking place, they are doing everything they can to get involved, obviously. Meyer Lansky worked with Lucky Luciano to create a huge gambling underbelly in Cuba. They pretty much owned the place in the 1950s. After their involvement, Cuba became known in the 40s and the 50s for this crazy nightlife that the pair had pretty much created themselves. They invested heavily in casinos, clubs, hotels. They ended up paying through the nose to pay off President Fulgencio Batista. Their dream was to have the ability to have an entire criminal enterprise that they started to create in Cuba, but to have it operating outside of the strict laws of the United States. When the revolution of Cuba happened and Fidel Castro took over, it pretty much ended everything the mafia had ever done to build in Cuba. Lansky had an agreement where Batista would open Havana to large-scale gambling. I'm talking large-scale. And his government would match, dollar for dollar, any hotel investment over a million dollars, which would include a casino license, which is a huge freaking deal for the Mafia. Carlos Prio Sacaras, the current president of Cuba, was bribed $250,000 to step down and let Batista take over as president so that the relationship between Cuba and the American Mafia could thrive. So pretty much they're like, hey, like, we'll throw you 250 bones, you go away, 
and let Batista, who is willing to play ball with us, come and become president. Things had officially kicked off in Cuba with the Havana Conference on December 22nd, 1946. He already had a lot of business in action before that, but this can be considered the official start of the relationship between the American Mafia and Cuba. That relationship was solid and absolutely thriving until the Cuban Revolution began in 1959. In 1959, Batista fled to the Dominican Republic, and on New Year's Eve of 1958, several of Lansky's hotels and casinos ended up getting looted and destroyed, which prompted the beginning of the revolution. On January 8th, 1959, Fidel Castro marched into Havana and took the place over. Lansky had thankfully made it out of Cuba the day before, but the new president of Cuba, Manuel Yerutia Leo, started the process of closing all the casinos in the area. Gambling was officially outlawed in October of 1960, and Castro took control of the entire island's population of hotel casinos. So, obviously, when Castro comes in and takes control of all the casinos, that's the end of the relationship between Cuba and the American Mafia. Lansky walked away with a $7 million loss and absolutely no active business ventures on the island of Cuba that he had created. And I think that he just considered himself lucky to have gotten out in time. Because if he had been caught... I guarantee you he would have spent the rest of his life in a Cuban prison. Lansky ordered the hit of his best friend, Bugsy Siegel, on June 20th, 1947. Siegel had created Las Vegas, and after his death, Lansky had continued to grow what Siegel had started. I made a video about Virginia Hill. You can go check out that video if you're interested in how Siegel created Vegas, but he did. And then he was killed, and Lansky just built it up from there. Lansky also had a lot of business going on in Miami, but Miami had recently been cracking down on casinos and all forms of gambling. So pretty much the only stream of revenue outside of New York for Lansky is the business that he had growing in Vegas. And that is where the craze become relevant. Because Lansky had lost so much money in Cuba and in Miami, he set his sights on London to be the next big money earner. Lansky and Bruno had heard a lot about the craze and their ability to elude authorities by blackmailing guys like Boothby and other influential political figures. They reached out to the craze, who were very hesitant to start any sort of relationship, like even have a conversation, but they had a meeting and that meeting was fruitful. They set the meeting up through George Raft, a Hollywood star who is currently living in London. The craze absolutely loved this man and his portrayal of Gino Ronaldo in Scarface. Raft, who had played multiple mafia members on TV and in movies, was actually hooked up in real life. And when his movie career kind of petered out, he ended up moving to London so that he could facilitate relationships between the American Mafia and foreign gangsters 
like the craze. Lansky and Bruno hired the craze for protection of their club, the Colony Sports Club that they had in London, and they ended up paying them 500 pounds per week for security for the club from the firm. At one point, Ronnie had attempted to go to New York to meet up with Lansky and Bruno, but he had been refused admission to the United States due to his criminal record. So he turned around and went home, and he never got to actually meet them. During their first meeting, they had handed over bearer bonds that they were in possession of, and pretty much these bearer bonds, they couldn't sell them. They were, like, way too hot to cash in in the United States. And when they handed them over to the craze to convert, they ended up getting entwined with the Controni family in Canada as well. When the craze were able to get the bearer bonds converted without much issue, the American mafia is like, oh, hell yeah. Score one for the team from here on out. This is the number one stop that we're gonna go to whenever things need to be done that can't be done in America because the government's on a lookout. All right, I think this is a good time for me to stop because I've been recording for a while and I think I gotta stop here and go to part two if you want to see the rest of this story. I'm so sorry to part one and part two it, but again, I'm barely scratching the surface here. There's still another hour or two at least in information on the craze so i i'm gonna have to part two this i'm so sorry guys but i'll see you in part two definitely come check it out if you enjoyed this video thank you so much for hanging out with me and i really hope that you come back for the next episode or if you hate this episode maybe check out a few other ones don't forget to like share subscribe comment do all the things and i will see you next time thanks Bye.